Welcome to Sinner's Take, another Catholic Guys podcast of which we are the worst. Thank you for joining us for part two with Father Matt. So one thing that we have touched on kind of in the past is the the difference between being culturally Catholic and maybe living the faith. So do you have any thoughts on that up front or do you want me to maybe clarify more kind of what I'm getting at? I got some thoughts there. Um, I think you're right. It it crosses all different cultures and societies. Um, Some cultures, some countries are known kind of to be Catholic, right? And so there might be an impression there. The United States brings us together in a very eclectic community. So some of those traditional ties might, might fall away, might change. Uh, but I think it applies to everyone. So there's something that's, that's comfortable and familiar, like your mom's favorite recipe, or your recipe you love that your mom makes, right? And so there's that part that's home, right? It's that smell of that apple pie, right? And it's some goofy song from Mass, right? And you're like, oh, I know these words, right? And there's something comfortable there. And, there are some people that only tap into that at perhaps Easter or Christmas or when a family member gets married or there's a funeral perhaps in the family. Um, in some ways, I would describe that in some ways as cultural Catholicism or maybe there's no liturgical involvement as well. But a lot of people still identify on the census or any kind of form like that as Catholic. I want to dive into that about what that means to them. I want to encourage, certainly as a priest, uh, that people experience the fullness of what their faith has to offer. I feel like God created us in such a way that we can fully rely on God. We don't need to do it all ourselves. We try to do it ourselves. Things don't work out so great. And so when we kind of get this message like, hey, let's celebrate the Lord's resurrection, you know, once a week, it's not because God needs the pews full, right? That's not the point. It's because God knows us. But about every eight days or so, we're going to need a refill, right? And so it'd be a good reason to go to Mass to receive Jesus' body and blood be with our brothers and sisters, and as you say, well, to go out to love and serve the Lord by our lives, uh, to go out and put our money where our mouth is at, right? So there's that basic anthropology that's going on. Uh, So that's something that could be always more, and so I'm trying to move toward that direction. That being said, I also want to recognize the beauty of a faith that is still a remnant. I don't want to lose that ember, whatever bit is glowing there. And if you find yourself there, or friends, I would say add a little oxygen to that ember, see where it might glow, right? Again, thinking back to your family's story, if it's coming from family, what was it that helped your family coming across the Atlantic or crossing the Rio Grande, whatever it might have been, that they brought their faith with them and that helped them through very difficult times, right? There's that kind of thing. If you have those kind of old stories in your family or you have some rosary or the smell of incense or the song on a piano kind of has a a happy memory for you. Think about why, you know, what was it like when you were younger and that held more meaning, you know, and and try to see if there's more there to grow from. There's just a lot of wealth too uh, in, we talked about the church fathers and, and mothers and the theology there, just to dive into it as you're facing we got an election this year. I think a lot of people are trying to struggle with that or at least deal with the impacts of that or a pandemic, right? So many crises. Again, why reinvent the wheel there when you have this resource, which you really somewhat identify with? Dive into that and that might lead you somewhere. Um, so I want to look at that in an optimistic way. Uh, someone who might consider themselves, well, I'm culturally Catholic, right? But that might not manifest itself much otherwise. Try to dig into why. 
and see if you can't find some positives there. And if so, that might show some value to you that you want to expand on. I think you'll find some welcoming people that want to help you do that. Um, so my office at the parish was near the street. I had a window to the street and, you know, I would do my little paperwork, like everybody's got paperwork to do. And once in a while, you'd see a guy who was clearly in a gang, right, a, a drug trafficking kind of gang. Uh, and you could tell by the tattoos, either on his face or perhaps what he was wearing, or because I'd seen him in the neighborhood, right, doing other stuff. Uh, it wasn't, it was a big place, but not that big of a place you couldn't recognize people. And so you might have an, an immediate impression of someone dressed like that or with tattoos like that or you'd seen involved in other things. Uh, what I thought was quite beautiful, despite those elements of that person's life, uh, going by the church, you know, the guy would sign himself, right? Or when tragedy stuck in, struck in his family, maybe his mother died or grandmother or even somebody else who was his friend involved in nefarious things, uh, faith took on a meaning there too. So you never know what's going to happen until great need strikes. But also I was given a lot of hope seeing that guy's response there, that there was a chance, right? A little bit of uh, Han Solo there, right? <laughs> Scruffy looking nerf herder or whatever. Uh, there's a chance to dive into something else beautiful. And yes, the faith gets co-opted. Watch the Godfather movies. You can get into that. It's not certainly unique to any one culture. But as people seem to have kind of moved away from the faith, at least in a formal expression, if there's that cultural remnant there, that too gives me hope. Yeah, that that's beautiful. Really m using that mustard seed uh, as much as we can. And I think it's also easy for us to, and again, I'm guilty of it too, for us to see the way that we, we might interpret someone else isn't practicing their faith to the fullest and to be critical of that and to overlook the ways that we're not following God's will or, or practicing the faith as much as we can. So definitely to keep an eye uh, on ourselves and not on our neighbor um, because we can always be doing more. Um, yeah. So one... I guess, field that we're kind of been getting at in, in a few ways, but maybe you want to touch on directly is some modern or common struggles of college students and the role faith might play not directly in their faith lives, but in their life outside of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I lived and worked with college students the last five years very explicitly in residence halls the last six years. Anyway, just for a while and kind of seen a number of trends, and I admit mostly with men. So loneliness is a big thing, for sure. Uh, coming to a new place and feeling challenged in ways that you feel like an imposter there definitely knocks down your self-esteem. See, that is very common. From there, uh, trying to fit in, and living up to an expectation you think is there, whether that's true or not, I see that in a public way. A lot of times, and maybe particularly at Notre Dame, with abuse of alcohol, right? And different struggles that leads into, certainly if someone develops or already has an addiction, just making poor choices when one's intoxicated. And you know, we deal with a lot of very sad situations. Somebody's getting hurt uh, physically by hurting themselves or hurting other people. There's a whole bunch of literature and, and conversation about the Title IX sexual assault conversation in the United States. Uh, it's an important conversation to have. I dealt with many of those cases and very few of them didn't involve alcohol or intoxication from one party to the other. They kind of go hand in hand in that story. Um, and then especially on uh, talking about the men's side of things, um, just a lack of healthy integrated sexual uh, morality or just understanding of our beautiful gift of human sexuality. 
So I talked with a lot of young men who are dealing with pornography addictions, for example. And that's not only because of loneliness, but loneliness would often play a part there. Uh, other guys who are in committed relationships and their girlfriend doesn't know, or maybe she's sadly very all too aware of this guy's pornography addiction. Um, just those things that are trying to fill an understandable need, an essential part of humanity to be known, to be loved. Uh, and these other things that people are going to, young adults feel often tempted or like they're expected to go to, they just don't satisfy, right? That really hurts and it's hard to see, but to see it over and over again. And a part two that maybe brings this together is just a prevailing sense that we can compartmentalize so much of our lives. So a common trope at a lot of universities is, I'm gonna work hard during the week, you better believe I'm gonna play just as hard on the weekend. So to the point where you become a very different person on Friday and Saturday night than you have been on Monday or Tuesday. And if you look back, you're like, what? How does that square, right? Uh, and then we just keep going from there where you go from being a person who's an honest person to a person who, you know, you know honest people can make mistakes. I'm not saying anybody's perfect, but then, you know, I, I only lie about something, right? I've compartmentalized that part of my life too. Like, well, it doesn't really matter if I'm not so honest about a certain part of my life, you know, and then you start to see that all kind of fraction and fall apart and we lose this integration. So our faith really calls us to, and even secular philosophy could even call it that kind of integrity, right? That oneness, that unity within ourselves. If we can't hold that together, it's going to be hard to hold a society together, let alone to keep going without feeling like you're falling apart. Uh, and there's, I would certainly encourage anybody who's struggling with addiction, self-esteem issues, any other kind of thing that's tearing you apart to get professional help through counseling and therapy. I'm a big fan of that. And I think faith plays a role side by side with it. So I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm happy to listen to people and to connect them with those resources. And I think a lot of our faith leaders, lay ecclesial ministers and ordained as well, are happy to do that. And I love working side by side with our therapists and psychologists to help people address those different parts of their lives. So if you're a young person, you're a college student facing those stresses and pressures, I encourage you to take advantage of those resources. It's just going to be a great way for you to not only survive, but to thrive in these years of college. Soak up as much as you can, formulate relationships. They're going to last a lifetime. And then, man, we need you. We need you to be doing good in the world, applying all the things you're learning and the ways you're growing at college. Do you find that some people might view the, their priest as their surrogate psychologist that maybe in, there, there are things that they bring to you that they maybe should be bringing somewhere else? Yeah, that happens all the time. And I think for our brothers and sisters who don't have a faith tradition, talking to friends who are medical doctors, that's where they go, right? Because they don't have another way. I think we're all kind of looking for that. And a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about their feelings right, talking about their mental health issues. And so they go to people of confidence, of trust, right, like a medical doctor, their physician, or to their priest. I think it's up to us as ministers to help people to see there's a line there, not that we're going to abandon them, but to walk with them and appoint them and then go with them to that next appointment. As a residence hall rector, I would literally do that, right? Uh, less so from the confessional, more as the rector. Guy's coming to talk to me about, you know, he's really having a hard time, and I listen and do as much as I can. And I say, hey, would you like to walk over together? To the university counseling center right that was that's a great way that we can partner um, so if you're a minister i would say definitely know your limits and connect people if you're someone who's looking for help you don't know where to go start with who you do trust and 
ask them to help you connect or trust that they will from there. And there is a big stigma, I understand that. One of the things we would do at the parish in Mexico, people who were victims of violence, right? Maybe they had been kidnapped or a friend or a relative had been sadly murdered or, or otherwise been the victim of violent crime. They'd be afraid to leave their home, right? And they, by and large, didn't trust psychologists and there weren't always psychologists or people of faith. We would encourage them to come to the parish. We would go and accompany them from their home and at the parish, we would have trained psychologists and psychiatrists who are also people of faith to bring that together. And I think that's a real resource that we can you know, add to the community. Mm. Yeah, and my background is in psychology, and that's the field I was going to go towards before law school. So I am a huge proponent of probably everybody should see a therapist. They're just doing a lot of good. Uh, and especially like you were saying that do have a faith background as well so that they can have a good understanding of maybe certain things with which you're struggling. But even if not, I think there are aspects of the, the human psyche that they're just so beneficial to have. But I like the point you made that taking the first step with someone you trust, maybe it is too big of a step to get to a, therapy, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But starting with the priest, or even if you can't get that far, someone just that you know that you trust, a sibling, a friend, because so many of the things that ail us thrive on being kind of kept in the dark and spinning in our own head and isolating ourselves. And so bringing it to the light is just such a powerful thing. So definitely. And that is amazing, the work that you personally are doing and that uh, everyone of Holy Cross is doing. Uh, so one of the things that I think, especially college-age students, will be struggling with is discernment. And so I, I had read somewhere that you had spoken about your experience in seminary as like a six-year discernment because you were, well, I'm sure you could say it better than me. So whatever you'd like to share on yeah, that. Yeah, I'll be glad to. Uh, and I worked in vocation promotion for several years, both in Mexico and the United States. So it's been really just a blessed opportunity to accompany, in my case, young men as they're discerning their call, though I've come to work with a number of women too. And it's just interesting, especially for women, maybe I'll touch on this because I've been talking a lot about men. Uh, I think there's a, a beautiful uh, supported call to marriage for a young woman, and that's great. I wouldn't be here without that, right? It, it, I really respect my sisters who are married and the rest. Uh, but also that religious life is something that's a viable option for women today. There are great communities out there that just provide that opportunity for ministry, the freedom of the vows, the support of community. I think there is a bit of a tension these days. Uh, I hear young women saying this, college-age women saying, you know, I am just so inspired by the work of certain communities that are older and larger. And yet, this is a generalization, they have very few members who are my age or close in age. And so they're kind of missing that not just the community objectively, but that peer community. And it's a struggle for them on one side. On the other side, there are beautiful, dynamic communities that are have a shorter history, in that sense, young, but also they have a lot more young people. And now there are definitely exceptions to this too, but by and large, maybe they don't have the network of hospitals or the opportunities to be a university professor in chemistry or engineering in those communities, right? And they're both necessary, right? Whether that's on the second hand, as I described it, a group who teaches in primary education or is directly serving the poor and homeless, right? This is just as important as running a healthcare network, right? And again, I'm overgeneralizing, but I hear a lot of young women saying, 
I want to do the ministry of a certain group, but I want to have the peers of another group. And my heart goes out to young women there. I would say there are different uh, combinations there, or maybe you're going to be the, the, the first person, the beachhead, you know, to get that going. And religious life also has its cycles as well. There are new communities that start all the time. Perhaps you might be a part of that. So dive into that. Certainly, if God's calling you to marriage, it's a beautiful, wonderful vocation to be uplifted. And then we kind of also talk about a, a third vocation as well, a call to single life. Not one that's selfish as a bachelor or bachelorette, right? But one that is dedicated to God and neighbor, loving God and neighbor. I have a friend who's a consecrated virgin in the Diocese of Lansing. And it's just great to see her commitment there and her ministry. And, you know, just to see how she serves in a, a way that's unique to mine, right, as a religious uh, you know, living in community, she didn't feel called to that, right? And nor does she feel called to marry, to be married. And yet she can live out her life that way. So, you know, whether it's a single life dedicated to God and neighbor, to a religious life, uh, and perhaps the priesthood on the men's side of thing, or to marriage, just listen to that call and see where you're most at home, right? Talk to people who know you, ask them where they might see you or your gifts at work, you go from there. And just take it slowly. I do compare it to a dating relationship between a young man and young woman, right? So you just get to know somebody initially, right? So send your name in and get some information. Give a call or an email. Talk to the vocation director. They'll be more than happy to, to talk to you about that. Or maybe in the diocese if you feel called to a, a dedicated single life in that vocation. Or to married couples who you respect, right? Maybe a young teacher from your high school just got married. Somebody like that. Somebody at the parish maybe even an older couple who you really look up to. Just, you gotta have those examples in our lives. And sadly right now, I think the reality for a lot of American Catholics is that we don't have as, as many of examples of the religious or the priests in our lives. So you might have to work a little bit harder. I think it's definitely worth it. I guarantee you those communities will be happy to talk to you. So definitely do that. So you're starting off kind of like going on the first date or even you're not even sure what to call it yet. You don't want to define the relationship quite yet. Um, so you're just gonna go through there and you get to a point where you spend some time there. We call them informal visits. Maybe spend a, a day or two at the seminary or the house of formation. Now I'm thinking about religious life and priesthood now. And you're just getting a sense of their spirituality, of what the day-to-day -day life is like. If that makes sense, you take another step. If it doesn't, you don't. And don't feel terrible. Don't feel like you let anybody down. Uh, so you go from there. And I'll get even more specific in Holy Cross. Um, you would do this informal visit. Then you make an application, do a formal visit. If you're accepted, you have a, a one-year, we call it postulancy. This, you're still on your own financially, yet you live in the house. You don't charge you rent or room and board or anything, uh, but there's a difference still. And you're asked to live as if you were in the house, right? So you're not dating and you're gonna be obedient to the house schedule and uh, you're gonna live simply. And it's just a great way. Up to a certain point, you can learn as much as possible. At one point, you need to live it out, right? And so if you want to use the dating relationship, I guess you need to, know what that person's gonna be like when you're like working on a project together, you're going to mass together, you're serving together, you, you get to see what, how you work as a pair. Same with the religious community. And then eventually, you know, so in Holy Cross you have this postulancy, the next year is our novitiate. This is a year of prayer and silence on a mountain, literally in Colorado, it's great. I'm a pretty big extrovert. I thought I'd hate this. I ended up loving it, miss it a lot. Uh, so for us it's one year, for the Jesuits it's two years, for a lot of sisters communities it's two years. It's a, a time away from formal studies generally. We are learning about your religious community. And really, if you spent that first year getting to know in a horizontal way the community writ large, this is your year to go deep you know, in a vertical way with God, your relationship with God. And if that has gone well, 
In Holy Cross, you take your first vows. This is one year at a time, the same vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And each of those years, as that comes to expire, you're asked to petition again, almost for the first time, right? And to say why it's been so good or what the struggles are you want to keep working on. If you want to continue at all, you certainly can discontinue if you'd like. And the community would say the same thing, like, you know what, Alec, it's going great. You know, or, you know, Matt, maybe you need to take some time away, <laughs> whatever it might be. And so for us, that's three more years. And at the end of that journey there, five years, you would petition to take final vows. And that's like asking somebody to marry you, right? And in my case, after all that time, I, there were certainly struggles. There were plenty of years where I thought like, goodness, this is 85, 90% where I'm supposed to be. Let's, this is kind of a no-brainer. Other years, it's like, well, 51, 50 and a quarter, you know? Like, should I keep going? It's just enough. Um, but it was enough to keep going. And not that it was perfect in any means or any way. But at the end of that five years, looking back, you know, if I had been in a dating relationship this serious for five years, it was this good, I would be looking for that ring, right? And so you, you petition for final vows. If that's accepted, that goes all the way up to Rome and everything. And uh, if you're accepted, it's just a great, joyful day, and you feel so confident, uh, not in an arrogant way, but just a relaxed way. You found your fit, right? You found where you're supposed to be, and to go from there. Not to say that there aren't struggles after final vows or after marriage vows or whatever it might be, but at least in that moment, you're, you're starting to find some solid ground there. You profess your final vows, and if you're called to priesthood, you'll get ordained a deacon, get ordained a priest. It's also an addition, right, in this religious life kind of context. Uh, and you go from there. And, yeah, that's the big moment for us in Holy Cross is our final profession. What unites us as brothers and sisters and priests, and actually our brothers and priests take final vows together. And the next day, the guys who are called to be a priest would be ordained a deacon. But I love that unity in our final profession, something that binds us all together. That is beautiful. I, I haven't heard it phrased in exactly that way as, yeah, if I were dating someone for five years, that'd be great. And also, I think hearing that is comforting as well, that you're not commit as soon as soon as you talk to the vocations director as soon as you start in the seminary you're not a priest right there you know there's there's time and and there are so many guys i mean bobby one of the our recurring hosts here he spent some time in the seminary and it is it's a beautiful way at the very least it will help you find your whatever your other whatever your vocation actually is but then also that time you get to spend deepening your relationship with the lord it is beautiful. I totally agree. And I don't think that time is ever wasted, right? I started off, there were six of us total. Two of us are priests now. And the other guys, I stay in pretty close touch with most of them. And they would say they're better husbands and dads today because of that time they were able to grow in their relationship with God, right? And so hopefully their spouses are happy and their kids yeah. are benefiting from all that. So yeah, I think that's totally true. And I know there was a stigma at some time, like, oh, I failed or I didn't make it all the way as if that's how you should look at it. I totally disagree with that point. I would say, as you did, this is not time wasted. You're going to benefit from this. And so will whoever is a part of your life later on. Yeah, my my thought in the discernment of vocation, and this is just maybe new words for me, but that you're figuring out where you will best be of service. So, And, and the reason this came up in my head as you were speaking was, how easily so many of us forget the consecrated single life as a vocation and it's not just like you said it's not i'm gonna go do whatever i want now it's that i am now so it's i am i can serve god and my community in in this distinct way whereas marriage is god and my spouse and the priesthood is god and my parish or, or how, however you make that distinction but each vocation is 
service and really viewing ourselves as how can we glorify God and be helping those around us. So where that, and maybe this will kind of uh, start landing the plane here, but why law school? All right. Yeah, I get this question a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's totally a fair question. Uh, so I've mentioned already at length how much I enjoyed that ministry, working with young adults in the university setting. In Holy Cross, we have six colleges and universities across this country and others in other countries. So there's just a lot of ministry, ministerial opportunities there. Uh, I think something that uh, our Holy Cross schools offer, not that other places don't, we really pride ourselves on forming the whole person, heart and mind. And uh, Father Moreau, our, our founder, talked about not educating the mind at the expense of the heart. So as important as the great engineering and math and theology courses are, that formation, that education outside of the classroom is going to be equally important for us. I mean, literally, that's why we have a football team, right? It's not just to beat USC all the time. But I know Alex from Southern yeah. California. But uh, no, it's, it started off certainly as a way to train and discipline the body alongside the mind, right? And to go along with that, you know, a marching band and volunteering, right? To be involved in the community to form this whole person into the man or woman that God dreams you to be. I really love that ministry. That's something I want to spend my life doing. I really feel called to. It's something we do in Holy Cross. I enjoyed it immensely directly as that rector of a hall, leading 220 men there. And we started a community from nothing, which hadn't happened in a long time, and another great opportunity. I think as we face the realities of fewer numbers of religious and priests in this country, it's really important. It's a very valuable ministry to as we invite our lay colleagues to join us in that ministry. It's something that wouldn't have happened 100 years ago or even far less. Uh, with that too, whether it's a, a priest or religious who doesn't know the model or a lay person in the same way, we need folks who are able to share that and kind of train, right? So I would love to have an opportunity to share the experience I've had with those who are new uh, or coming to this ministry so that we can multiply it, right? And so that's a part of it. But more specifically, uh, as I was doing this ministry, the, the more I did it, the more I came to see that the lives of our students were wrapped up in questions that were questions of the law. And so kind of to give a model or an analogy, I want to kind of learn legalese so I can help other people to understand mission, right? To be a bridge, to be a translator there in our works, to do that and advance as much of the mission as we can within the appropriate bounds and the cautions that our legal training and our legal experts are going to do. It's like, I'm not going to be, I don't necessarily feel called to be general counselor or something like that. We have a wonderful one at Notre Dame who I trust implicitly, um, but I hope to be a support in there, a partner there uh, with that mission side and to be able to dive deeper into those conversations and as much as we can together to move this mission forward. Um, so that's really kind of that call and hope there. The provincial and the whole province was excited about that, needing folks in student affairs and kind of these ministerial administrative roles to multiply efforts that we have there, again, expanding that team, involving as many people as possible in it. Um, and they're just going to be parts of this country and, and parts of higher education maybe aren't as familiar with the faith model in general, but maybe particularly our Holy Cross charism. Um, so if we can get a guy in there, somebody in there with experience, and especially a broad experience, that the legal kind of framework and problem solving that we're developing, uh, if, if I can bring that as well, we just see that as a resource for the whole effort. That's so cool. How has the 1L is how we refer to the a person in their first year of law school. So how has 
1L affected your priesthood? Are you still able to give mass? And what, what does your, how has your, I guess, day-to-day life as a priest shifted? Yeah. So I applied broadly. It wasn't just like, oh, you should go to Notre Dame. It's the oldest Catholic law school in this country, which it is. I'm very grateful to be here. But I was looking elsewhere, too, to see where I might develop my gifts. Uh, a big part about being at Notre Dame is my Holy Cross family, my religious community being here. Uh, could have lived with a different religious community in a different city, and that would have been beautiful in its own right. And we have guys that do that. Uh, I just am so grateful for it. The other side of that is that I have almost 20 years of friendships and ministerial relationships all around town, especially on campus. So it's really hard to take a step back and be very easy to get sucked in. And Alec, we've spent more time here than I have on anything else lately that's not reading for law school, which I love this, it's a great break. Uh, But if I was trying to do this all the time with the men in the hall, the student clubs I've been involved with, uh, other conversations about policy and decisions at the university, which I would just be a, a, you know, or a consultant for there we go uh you know if i was doing all that i I could not focus on my study so i intentionally asked and was assigned outside of the residence halls not even in the community house on campus so i live at the seminary across the lake which is just barely on campus really its own thing Uh, so i needed that distance and so i've intentionally not taken any masses on campus though i would love to that gives me a lot of life but it's essential for me to continue to live out my life as a priest. So it's great to be in a house of formation at the seminary where there's each of the hours of prayer, right? And common table, common recreation, doing that every single day. But then on Sundays, I, I work, I volunteer at a parish in town uh, in a lower income neighborhood, uh, bilingual place. So I can either do the English mass or the Spanish mass to keep ministering to folks there. And, and really, there are a lot of days that keeps me going as we're reading about contracts and some boat who sank somewhere and who's <laughs> responsible for paying for it. I can go and be with families in the parish on the west side, hearing about their lives and ministering to them. Uh, that's you know a priest, and I'm definitely going to hang on to that really tight, and that's going to keep me going as we're reading page after page and going through bundles of highlighters. Ah. <laughs> uh. That, yeah, that's fantastic. I can't imagine that it's easy to balance your service with the investment you're making in yourself, but also in yourself so that you can be of more service later. So that's, I'm sure that's a difficult thing to do. And I, and I'm sure the listeners appreciate you putting the time here. One thought I had as a final thing, I was speaking with uh, a fellow 1L who is not Catholic and just had some questions. And one of the things they had asked about was confession. And when they asked we were talking about the distinction between a a mortal sin and a venial sin and they're like that sounds like just we're in class so you're telling me these are the elements of a mortal sin and you're in your disposition and and all of this so uh have you noticed any other interesting overlaps or or things between the i guess canon law catholic faith and your newfound legal knowledge yes which is just (laughs) starting out but there's plenty uh we have the code of canon law in the Catholic Church, so an ancient form of law, right? And, you know, it's updated as recently as the 1980s. So we're pretty good at this legal thing, right? So as part of seminary, you take some canon law classes, and as a parish priest, you need to deal with it a lot. Uh, so as we've started to dive in, uh, certainly somewhat with contract law, but more, I would say, in our criminal law class. Uh, each of us are in that class. You see the importance of the state of mind, or the in Latin, mens rea, Right? What is the culpable state of mind, too? That is the question for sin, but guess what? That's what the prosecutor is trying to prove as well, and the jury has to decide on. 
Uh, so a lot of those overlaps and you know there are just a lot of commonalities as well trying to show enough or is that person responsible for whatever has happened um, and at least in the criminal law class that I'm in we started off with a lot of the philosophy behind punishment you know why do we punish are we trying to achieve a utilitarian goal of deterrence uh, that kind of element there or is it more of a retributive kind of punishing for the, the brokenness that was there and both as an individual and I'm one too goes to confession we look at that what's the impact there what are the ways we want to try to grow and do better right and encourage ourselves deter things in ourselves or make things right amongst ourselves and our, our people we've heard I guess but then certainly as a confessor too you're trying to apply the remedy that's going to be the most helpful to the person right I mean it's it's Jesus who's giving the mercy and you who are there to help shepherd and to bind up and to help uh, and so you want to be fair and kind and humble and also to challenge and to try to offer resources as well. So there's a lot of those overlaps with the law, the civil law, and then the, the canon law there. I think there's any other good ones. Uh, well, just like with contract law, I was talking about that before. One thing I say, it's the last thing before marriage prep, and I know you're getting ready for this. <laughs> uh, so at the rehearsal, I'll say to people, like, I'm sure we're going to have a great celebration at the reception. But please, before the wedding, make sure you have something to eat so nobody passes out. That happens sometimes. But also, too, let's not celebrate too much with alcohol or whatnot. If you're not able to enter into this agreement, neither the church nor the state, at least in Indiana, is going to count this as a valid agreement, either a sacrament or a contractual marriage civilly, right? So unless you want to do it all again, I promise you, nobody <laughs> wants you to do that, right? Uh, you better take it seriously. So that's one way where it really yeah. comes to, together there. So remember that. I'll write it down. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Father Matt. This has been awesome. I think, I mean, me for sure, and, and I hope everyone listening has learned something about the beautiful Holy Cross uh, and all the work you guys are doing. Is there any way that if, if someone heard this and was just inspired, what would you recommend? How can they support Holy Cross or get involved? Is, is there anywhere you'd like to point them? Yeah, we actually have a really great website, holycrossusa.org. Let's go in there. You're going to learn about the history, the current ministries in 16 countries. We have one of our members who's a canonized saint, one who's beatified, uh, others on the path that have just impacted the faith you know, in the United States and across the globe. Great stuff there. And just the spirituality of our founder, you know, being from a place, integrating within a place. We talk about him having a trust in divine providence, confidence in the cross is our only hope and a zeal for the apostolate. Father Moreau is just a, really an amazing guy. Uh, one of the things we thought, talked about maybe discussing is if there's a saint you'd like to have a conversation with, Father Moreau would be the one for sure. For me, you know, the spiritual father of what we do. And it's kind of funny. So he, uh, he was born in 1799. And so in his life, there were cameras, but it was, it was very much an aristocratic kind of thing, right? And as he was getting older, the community said, you know, Father, we, we would love a picture. No, no, that's too fancy for me, basically. So the story goes that he was he was pretty sick one day, just, you know, bad flu or cold or whatever. And uh, it was the day they had arranged it, and they are kind of like pushing him, pressuring him. And he's like, oh, goodness, you know, I'll do it if it's everybody. If everybody's around, I'll, I'll be a part of it. And I'm like, okay, sure. And so he comes down bedraggled and hadn't really slept. His habit isn't even on right, you can see in the picture. And they had agreed amongst themselves, everybody else, that at the count of three, they would get out of the way. <laughs> 
So they do it, one, two, three, and they leave, and he has this scowl on his face. So he's sick, and now he's angry. That's the only picture we have of the man. So it's, it's really disappointing. So I would love to talk to him and see what he's like in person, because his writings are so beautiful and uplifting. And there are anecdotes, too, that people would write about him that I guess... He would go into the classrooms and you know interrupt the class, and of course the teacher would be deferential and rile up the kids, like everybody's <laughs> favorite uncle, right? And play practical jokes on the other priests. Just a really jovial, joyful man. And so I would love a chance to uh, to have that conversation with him. So check out some stuff about Father Basil Moreau, now blessed Basil Moreau. God willing, he'll be canonized before too long. Yeah, so check that out. And maybe just one other clothing thought we had talked a bit about too. Uh, what, what's kind of the subject of prayer these days. Um, being a first-year student, again, has been difficult. We're going from something that I've done for five years, felt pretty good at, at least was familiar with, to starting over. So if anybody listening is starting over, finding themselves challenged, just a little bit of my prayer in that. Uh, Alec and I had our first graded assignment given back the other day. I won't ask you how you did, Alec, and I won't go too deep into mine, but I will say I was disappointed in my grade. I thought I could have done better. Just missed a couple of questions, but that's the way it shook out. And so I was feeling a bit bummed, like, what am I doing? Did I make a mistake? Am I using this time? Well, all those those negative thoughts that happen to anybody, especially when we're starting off with something new, something we find very challenging. Uh, the way the professor gave the grades, they're all anonymous, of course, but it did show you top to bottom where you stacked up. And uh, I'll say I was sixth from the bottom, right? And I was like, oof, there's like 30 people in the class. I'm like, well, that's where I am, right? <laughs> so don't take your worth from that, but that's not my point. That's just a side point everybody should listen to. What helped me in my prayer, and, and I go to someone for spiritual direction. It's a sister uh, who I go to to kind of bounce off my ideas and try to, she really, really tries to reflect back to me how God might be moving in my life. One of the things we talked about, instead of seeing myself as not number one, I turned around and realized that there were five other people who were having a worse day than me, right? And I have, I'm very blessed to have job security when this is all over and I'm just presuming most of those folks don't, right? And so this would hit even harder. So in my prayer, I had an opportunity from then to now to pray for them. And I, it's anonymous. I don't know who my classmates that those are. Um, but just as we face difficulties, yeah, you know, there's that old kind of saying, oh, someone else is having a worse day, which is true. But also just seeing in context where your um, struggles are, not to say that we shouldn't you know, acknowledge them, uh, but to pray for those who are also struggling or perhaps even struggling in a more difficult way, more profound way. Um, it's one way they say that pain shared is pain lessened. And so by doing that, suffering with compassion, right? Those are ways we can be in solidarity, solidarity with others. We can also get through our struggles and frankly, we can move forward to the joy of heaven and everything that comes before that. Wow, that, that, that's beautiful. I love the humility of all of that. So thank you again, Father. I really appreciate it. And I know there were even more things on here, so maybe we'll find time to do this again. I really appreciate great. all your yeah. thoughts. Yeah, I know you got a lot of studying to do, so we'll have yeah. to wait till after the finals maybe. And oh, yeah. uh, I'm gonna go check out, they said that tonight, Mars, the planet, is the brightest and closest it's going to be until the 2030s when the seminarians has a telescope. So I'm going to check that out. Nice. Can't miss that. Nope. Awesome. Well, thank you, Father, and thank you to everyone for listening. Hopefully you found this fruitful and maybe just something you can take with you. Thank you for listening, and you will hear us in the next one. God bless you all.